Good morning, my name is Sylvia, and I will be reading today from Psalm 8. There's my kid. Yep. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established your strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look to you at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. Will you join me as we pray? Father, uh, we do pause and, and cry out, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth and your majesty that it would take the form of humility as we consider even the personal work of Jesus this morning. Would you cause our hearts and our minds to see him and think of him as we ought, uh, to respond then appropriately as we praise him uh, for his work in our lives. And so we give you all the glory and expect that you will do great things through your spirit, by your word, in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Taylor Reevely. It's a delight to be with you this morning as I was listing the things, well, this weekend, as I was listing the things I was thankful for, many times in my heart you came up and I'm thankful for you and thankful to be here. And I was thankful for a good time with family, a good time with food, um, and a good time with college football. This, uh, this weekend was a rivalry weekend in the college football world, which some of you are thrilled about and some of you despise that I'm even mentioning it right now. But if you were awake after the food coma and the dopamine-infused uh, shopping spree, you could have witnessed what was possibly the last Civil War game in between the Oregon Ducks and the Oregon State Beavers for all time, very possibly. And when those teams came out on the field in their orange and their green, there was no question who was playing for which team. Do you know which team was green? The Ducks. <laughs> and the orange team was green. Okay, there was no question for people who were watching the game. But imagine now for a minute, if you were playing in that game. Okay, that's like a lifelong dream. Imagine you were playing in that game, and you went through the normal pregame ritual. You're at the locker. You put your jersey on. You go out on the field, and then you find out you put the wrong team's jersey on. So this is like a disorienting nightmare is what it is. And you, you, you look like a duck, okay? You smell like a duck. You even think you're a duck. And when the ball is snapped, uh, Bo Nix, who is the Ducks quarterback, for those of you who don't know, instead of handing you the ball, he turns around and tackles you. And you are perhaps in this, in this sequence, you are shocked and you are angry and then you are maybe embarrassed. It's just a, it's the, the nightmare of legends on game day. 
Well, this nightmare is uh, a reality for some people in the scriptures today who looked like they were on God's team, who smelled like they were on God's team, who even thought that they were on God's team. But when Jesus comes, he tackles them and they are not too happy about it. Because they might have fooled the crowds, they might have fooled themselves, but they can't fool Jesus. So would you turn with me as we read really this riveting story found in Matthew chapter 21 beginning in verse 12. Matthew 21 verse 12. And this morning we will see that when Jesus comes, He judges the house of Israel for its faithlessness and its fruitlessness. And we'll consider those two facets in turn this morning And I'll begin by reading a view of Israel's faithfulness, which Jesus judges. This is Matthew 21, beginning in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. As we dive in this morning, we do well to review what precedes this. Last week was a notable shift in Matthew's writing. Up to that point, he'd been revealing really this unsuspecting, upside-down nature of the kingdom of heaven. But last week, the scriptures revealed the upside-down nature of the king of heaven as we witnessed him riding a donkey into Jerusalem. The nature by which he fulfills the Old Testament scriptures there is surprising not because it is by political power or strength that he saves his people, but by his humility. However, you remember, even as he was riding into town, the crowd around him recognized him, albeit... uh, Only partially, they recognized him and exalted him as the long-awaited rightful king, the son of David. Now I start there because the king that we're introduced to today appears very unlike the king we met last week. However, we are working right now to form a complete picture of who Jesus is. Because Jesus, as he really is, is the Jesus who saves his people. Not Jesus as we want him or imagine him to be. And so with open eyes and ears, we will need to hold intention the Jesus we met last week with the Jesus we meet this week. The humble king riding on a donkey and the one with authority who judges. He is not one or the other. You cannot pick and choose which which Jesus you wish to have. 
He is both, and His nature is both simultaneously. He is weak, and He is strong. He is gentle, and He is firm. And in this sense, C.S. Lewis's description of Aslan is fitting. He is not safe, but He is good. And when He enters Jerusalem, He heads straight to the temple. And what does He find there? He finds the buyers and the sellers who are selling the goods needed for the Passover celebration there. And there are money changers charging admission and keeping the books. It's likely a large room, and it's easy to imagine just the bustle of the crowd as people make their way from all over the country to worship at Passover. And he drove them out. He overturned the tables of the money changers in the chairs of the pigeon sellers. Instead of giving them the ball, he tackles them. This is, this is not, okay, the kind, gentle, or humble thing to do, it appears, right? This is not gentle parenting, okay? There is no a moment to explain or reason or listen In fact, his reasoning then follows his action. In verse 13, he says to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So I want to highlight just a couple things for you here in what he says. When he says, It is written, this is the catchphrase for you don't really understand what you're doing. He famously used this phrase when uh, he was refuting Satan as Satan was tempting him in the wilderness. And here he is indicting those in the temple and correcting their egregious error regarding the nature of the temple and the person and work of God. And he quotes for them here Isaiah 56. And I want to read for you the verses that are on either side of his quotation from Isaiah 56, which say this. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. I read that extended quotation for you to hopefully help you see what Jesus does with his quotations. When he is quoting the Old Testament, he's importing the broader context along with the citation. And the broader context here is this. This house of prayer, this house belonging to the Lord, belongs to the nations. He gathers, he's in the business of gathering the outcasts of Israel, yes, but also those besides and beyond those whom are already gathered. 
You should be alerted really to a tectonic shift taking place here. Israel, you see, has been the epicenter of God's affection. They've been identified as the exclusive people of God through the Old Testament. And to this moment, Jesus' ministry really has been preoccupied with inviting and extending his invitation to Jews. But now something is happening. In the God who gathers the outcasts, the blind, the lepers, the demon-possessed, the paralyzed of Israel is now about to gather those who do not belong to Israel at all. The reach of his mission is expanding beyond the borders of this nation-state. The end that Jesus has had in mind all along throughout his ministry is beginning to unfold that those beyond Israel's borders would be welcomed as members of the family of people and people of God. And that shift is taking place right here. But it is only taking place as he enters now the epicenter of this Jewish identity, the temple itself in Jerusalem, and is appalled at what he finds there. And one of the major problems he has is that he identifies this house as his house. Okay, he's been away. And while he's been away, stuff's been happening in his home. And he comes back now to put it in order. And he says this, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now here's the question. Who are they robbing and how are they doing this robbery? They're supposed to be, these chief priests and scribes are supposed to be managing the temple and serving the people of God on behalf of God. That's their job. But instead what's happening here is they're managing the temple for their own profit and gain. They're using someone else's, the visitor's well-intentioned desire to worship God and extorting them in His name. Now today, we would throw, throw around the popular uh, term for this, spiritual abuse. There is right here, baked into their abuse, the most classic, predictable motive. Money. Why did they do it? Is there money? Yes, there's money. They're robbing worship from God and money from God's people. And here they are, as thieves, hiding in God's house. It's as though they're robbing God, and then because he's gone, they just stay there. Sleep in his bed and cook in his kitchen. And I don't even need to illustrate the folly of this point, because of course, when God comes to his house, he's going to judge those robbers. Now here's... It's an important part of this narrative, and it's really between the lines, so to speak, because really it seems to me that those who are buying and selling in God's house appear so confident, so comfortable, so relaxed, that there's really no way to imagine that they could think that they were robbing Him. They looked like they were on His team. They smelled like they were on His team. They even thought that they were on His team. They showed up to play the game, expecting that they had the right jersey on, but when that Messiah came, he doesn't give them the ball. 
Now, this is not their first warning. They were warned long ago in Jeremiah chapter 7, when God warns all the people of Israel who come to worship Him, calling them to amend their ways and their deeds, to execute justice, to not go after other gods, and certainly not to come stand before Him in worship and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all those abominations. And in verse 11 of Jeremiah 7, God says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And it's for this reason that no warning is needed, that the parenting is not gentle. And all Jesus is doing here once again is fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. And what he is indicating for us is that this nation has failed as catastrophically as they were warned, and is now being replaced or fulfilled, completed as the center of God's affection by a new people formed from the nations, from the Gentiles. Now that is exactly what happens. Okay, as soon as he kicks out these sellers and buyers and the money changers and the pigeon sellers, look who takes their place in verse 14. The blind, the lame, came to him in the temple and he healed them. That fulfillment's realized immediately. The outcasts, the ones who were barred from entry, come in. And they're welcomed, healed by their king. But the scene is not simply visual. It's not something you can only see. You can also hear it. Because in verse 15, the chief priests and the scribes, they saw the wonderful things that he did And they heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. That same cry that we heard the crowds cheer last week as Jesus rode in on the donkey. The same cry that the two blind men sitting by the side of the road cried out, Hosanna, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when those leaders, the chief priests and scribes, saw it and heard it, it says they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? In Jesus' response to them, maybe it doesn't look like much, but it's a nail in the coffin of his judgment. Jesus said to them in verse 15, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And he's quoting from Psalm 8, which Sylvia read a few moments ago, the famous messianic psalm about the Son of Man. And just like we had last week, we have an intentionally misquoted verse which fulfills the original intent but now brings in a new and fuller application. And the verse in Psalm 8 says this, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established Strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I say it's the nail in the coffin because the fulfillment that is taking place is that out of the mouths of the babies and infants are the true declarations of praise which themselves 
are the proclamation of the strength which God will display against his enemies. And his enemies are now clearly and fully understood to be his immediate audience, the chief priests and the scribes. Now, presumably, they hear these words and they know exactly what Jesus means. His judgment of them is swift and severe. They think that they're playing on God's team. But it turns out that God is against them. They think they are doing God's work in God's house in God's way, but it turns out that they are robbers squatting in the king's house when he comes home. Just like that, almost as fast as he came, Jesus leaves towards Bethany, back east of the city, and spends the night there. So Jesus has come now. Um, in, he's come in humility, but his humility is not exercised here. Not his humility, but his authority by identifying the temple as his house, driving out and rejecting those who defile it by their faithlessness. And then he announces the fullness of his mission to now include those who are not Jews in the true people of God. And what happens the next day is really a head-scratcher, maybe one of the strangest, funniest passages of Scripture to read. If, it's a head-scratcher, if it isn't connected to this first part. Because what Jesus does next is he lives out this judgment of Israel. This is a living parable of the judgment we have just seen. So here, Jesus judges Israel's fruitlessness. And look with me again in Matthew 21, and I will read for you what happens, picking up in verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered up at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Okay, a lot of peculiar things happening. It's not every day that we meet a hangry Jesus. But what he's doing here is enacting this judgment against this house of Israel the judgment he has just given. And there are some details to the story that might be helpful. He's hungry, and he's on his way back into Jerusalem and sees one tree. Not a grove of trees, not an orchard of trees, one tree. Now I say the one is significant because all of his hope and expectation to be satisfied and filled rests in this tree. His one expectation. And when he goes up to it, he finds nothing. Only leaves. 
No fruit, no figs, only leaves. And by every indication, this tree should be a fruit-bearing tree. It's healthy. It's full of foliage. It looks like one. It smells like one. It might even think it is one. But it doesn't taste like one because the leaves are simply a deception, a mask regarding the true nature of this tree. Now you can imagine how Jesus then would have been feeling. Okay, because likely Saturday night you got hungry and you went to your refrigerator and you remembered that you put the leftover mashed potatoes and the leftover turkey and the leftover stuffing in a Tupperware single serving size to microwave and reheat later that night when you were hungry. And you open the refrigerator and it is gone. And all there is is some sour milk and some limes. And you can, like, you can feel what Jesus feels. And that feeling is palpable. You feel the disappointment, the frustration, and the anger. And you start to identify what Jesus is feeling as he lives out this parable. Hungry, walking up to a tree that looks like it will satisfy him and finding nothing there. Now this little vignette is a a picture of Israel. He earnestly desires her to be a fruit-bearing tree, to look and produce like she was designed to look and produce. But she's nothing like it. He comes to her and she's merely a pile of leaves. She's merely wearing the jersey. And so he says to this tree, May no fruit ever come from you again, or literally, may, no, may you have no more fruit into eternity. And at once, the tree withers. So it is with this house of Israel, their fruitlessness is the root of their judgment. And their faithlessness is the root of their fruitlessness. And as such, they wither now under his condemnation and judgment. Now the disciples, they see this happen, literally in front of them. And they respond probably like you or I would respond. How did he do this? What wizardry does this master and teacher have that even trees will fall over and die? And you might expect that Jesus would, would answer that question. How does it happen? Well, it happens because magic. Or it happens because I'm God and you're not. But his answer is as peculiar as the scene itself, really. He says to them in verse 21, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, whenever you come across one of the most quoted, most loved verses in the Bible, you do well to pause and say, what, is it, what does it mean? How is Jesus using whatever you ask for in faith, you'll receive? It sounds uh, too good to be true, even. And that verse at the very end there has inspired really quite a few prayers from God, please... Let my body magically burn calories faster than I consume them. To, Lord, all I want is a husband or wife and children. 
from the absurd prayers to those genuine prayers. And in our experience, really, we wonder why don't we get what we ask for? If this is what it says. We question whether or not we actually have faith. And I want to suggest to you that this verse does not mean what we think it means. Throughout this whole now living parable and this whole section of Scripture, Jesus has really been doing one thing. He has been judging. Even the example prayer that He gives the disciples, if you say to this mountain, get up and move into the sea, is a judgment type prayer. To say, mountain, which mountain is He referring to? You kind of have to guess. But they're standing there looking at a mountain with a temple on top of it, representative of this foolish, faithless house of Israel. So, presumably, it's the mountain they could see. Mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, is to judge the mountain as having failed in its purpose as a mountain and to condemn it to a life not of prominence but of insignificance. And so when we come to that final line in verse 22, we should be queued up to hear Jesus describing judgment-type prayers that His disciples might make. Now He is, by His uh, leadership and development even of them, He is delegating His authority to them. He's already done that in Matthew 16 where Jesus promises to build His church on Peter the rock, and then gives him the keys of the kingdom, saying, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And what is happening here in Matthew 21 is that the means by which judgment will be enacted is coming. And Jesus is the active agent. The disciples don't pick up the mountain and move it into the sea. God picks up the mountain and moves it into the sea, and they have brought that judgment to pass by praying in faith. And this is what we really later see unfold in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. So the sense you get here is that these group, this group of 12 are the antithesis of the ones wearing the wrong team's jersey. These 12 are the first ones who get Jesus right. And because they get Jesus right, they line up on His team. And when they are lined up on His team, they now play the game with Him and not against Him. They are by virtue of their right judgment of who Jesus is. Now they are the faithful and fruitful ones whom Jesus does not oppose but welcomes. Now here's the bottom line. What are we going to do with this? You cannot afford to live your life hoping, thinking that you are on God's team when you are not. The humble Jesus who came riding on a donkey is the same king, the same Jesus who comes judging. And those who thought they were with him found out the hard way that they were in fact against them that He was against them. And you need to know that Jesus is coming again to judge finally and fully all of creation. Every stone will be uncovered. Every hidden thing will be laid bare. Your true nature will be exposed and you'll be unable to hide under a few leaves. 
So the lingering question now for us is this. Are you actually, truly with Jesus as he is? Or are you actually, truly against him? If you're not on Jesus' team, you might be able to fool some people. You might even be able to fool yourself, but you cannot fool Jesus. If you're not on Jesus' team, you will be unimpressed with Jesus. You'll resort then to spiritual manipulation or intimidation. If you're not on Jesus' team, your life will be without fruit because it is without faith. You see, just like in the Civil War, the kingdom of heaven and its king is extremely polarizing. You will either hate him or you will love him. And I have to ask, last week he was presented as this humble, gentle king. This week he is presented as a powerful king. And you cannot be intellectually honest and ambivalent about Jesus. You cannot like this humble king and champion him. And you cannot only love his authority and majesty. For he is both. Either you will embrace him for who he is or you will execute him. And here's why you should embrace Jesus as he really is. I mentioned last week, you need Jesus to be humble. You need that. You need him to be relatable. You need him to come to you. You need him to draw near to the poor and needy and sick because if you're honest, you need him to draw near to you. But you also need a Jesus who is strong, who comes in power, who's not fooled or tricked. A king who does not tolerate what is evil. You need that. And you look around at the world today and you say, I really wish this king didn't ride a donkey. I really wish he rode a white horse and carried a sword. And in Revelation 19, when he comes in final judgment, he does that. And he understands you and sympathizes with your problems because he has ridden a donkey. And he can do something about it because he rides a horse. And in between those two moments lie his greatest demonstration of humility, his death. In his greatest display of his power, his resurrection. He is exactly as he is the Savior and King you have been waiting for. So don't miss him now. In faith, would you embrace him as he is and find in him the one that your soul longs for, that you might bear much fruit. So that at his return, when he comes, you might find out that he is your friend rather than be surprised that he is your foe. Would you pray with me as we consider now Jesus? Jesus, we need to see you as you truly are. And we need to see ourselves as we truly are. So do not let us build our lives on some incomplete view of who you are and do not let us fool ourselves about who we are. Would you open our eyes to clearly see both of those realities? Not so we would form you into our image, 
but so that we might be conformed into yours. Would you please do that work in us, we pray in your name. Amen.